Welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. And I'm super excited because we have a really exciting guest with us here today. I'm going to leave her for, for last here because she's the, the, the special guest with us. First, we have Cannondale and Trainer Road's Amber Pierce. Hey, everybody. We have our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And then we have, and, and, and Kate, I'm not sure if this is the proper way to present you, so I apologize. It may be a bit long, but Red Bull and Scott Srams, Kate Courtney. How are you doing, Kate? Hey, thanks so much for having me on. I'm doing well. How about you? Doing awesome. Doing awesome. This is really cool to have you join us um, because you are, you, I mean, you are a world champion, which is super impressive uh, that, that you were able to do that. And for near and dear to our hearts here, because we're American, it was so cool and so inspiring to see an American step up and win a world championship in the sport of mountain biking, because it's just been a really long time for us to see anything like that. So, I mean, we've had Chloe Woodruff and she won, uh, she won last year. She won the Nova Mesto short track. Uh, you know, we've had Aaron Huck, we've had really awesome, you know, female pro mountain bikers. We've been really good at that. Uh, but to have you win a world championship was just so cool. So, uh, I'm just really excited personally to have you on here. This is just really cool. Um, and we even actually talked about this. You lapped me actually uh, many years ago. And I was like, I bet that Kate Courtney is going to do something really impressive one day. <laughs> sure enough. <laughs> so, um, okay. <laughs> uh, so a couple of things really fast. Uh, uh, so we should probably mention the fact that, that if you're listening to this podcast now, you can join us live on YouTube and you can join us on the live stream. And you can also submit the questions that you want to ask us and ask Kate and specifically. So then we can address those questions at the end of this one. Also, uh, you should subscribe to the Successful Athletes Podcast. You absolutely should do it. And you should head over to trainerroad.com. We've got tons of new stuff that are com that's coming out constantly. And you should head over there now because we have some exciting things even coming very soon and probably some things that have changed since you've been there last. So head over to trainerroad.com. Check it out. Good stuff there. Uh, Let's get right into it. We need to cover it. It's the elephant in the room, Cape Epic. That's the, the big thing. <laughs> Somebody uh, said, we're just going to talk about Cape Epic for the whole hour and not ask you <laughs> anything else. People are going to be pissed. But, so I don't want to, just want to set expectations for everybody. Right. So Nate, I want to let you drive this one because I'm not doing Cape Epic. So I'm not as personally interested in this, right? Like I, I'm not, I'm not vested at all, but you're doing Cape Epic. Kate, you rode Cape Epic with Annika Longvad as your partner and you two won Cape Epic. So we have like the, the perfect person to be able to ask questions about Nate. Okay. First we question. Have questions. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> right, can I give everyone the same information? We're not going to allow some people to listen to this post. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. Well, we'll cut it up. So it's bad information. Okay. First one. Is it really that hard? It's a tough stage race. Yeah. I mean, I think anything seems really hard until you do it and then you've done it. I was being facetious because I know your training hours sometimes are in the like thirties and I think you did it in less than 30 hours, but, uh, that seems really hard. Do you have any tips for, um, racing as a team? Like when you're racing with somebody and I think, uh, is it Annika or Annika? I always, I don't really know. It's Annika. Okay. Uh, yeah. Racing with a team. So this, this one, I, I actually was the learning party in this. Um, cause Annika is really experienced in doing that. And she was a stronger member of the team. Um, and I think, you know, the person that has more experience, the person that has more fitness, um, the person that has more tactical edge, you know, someone will kind of be the leader in the team and it's up to that person to make sure you don't blow your partner up. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing that you have to be careful of in the Cape Epic and that Annika knew and recognized from the start line is, 
you know, if you have someone that's even slightly, you know, slightly off your pace, if you push them too hard, you will not finish the race. Um, and there were so many women that we saw, you know, teams of two where one woman wanted to save the leaders and the other riders, you know, about to die. Um, and they pushed them over the brink and either they got sick or they crashed or, um, they just had re like really exploded by the end of the race. And so I think, um, you have to look at it as like this bucket and everyone's putting their best strengths into this bucket and you're trying to make it the strongest team possible. Um, and if someone maybe doesn't have the fitness to climb with you, let them lead on the descent or let them pull on the flats. Or if you're stronger on the flats, let them sit on your wheel and make sure they're drafting well and you're communicating and that you have words for if they get separated, uh, they can say slow down and they get back on your wheel where, you know, that doesn't take anything from you, but the 32nd, 150% of FTP sprint to get back on your wheel might blow them up. Um, so I think it's, it's really looking at as, a collective effort and doing your best to keep both parties performing at their best. Does the responsibility lie on both parties too, to like communicate and, and also listen? Yes. I think the communication part was, was very tough for me initially. Um, so I, you know, I was so excited to be riding with Inca, really thrilled to be in that race and really wanted to prove myself in a lot of ways that uh, I was capable of racing for that long, that I was capable of racing uh, well in the event and contributing. Um, but from the very beginning, when we started training together, Annika was like, if you are going too hard, you have to tell me. And I think that was something I learned um, that, you know, to speak up and, and to really listen to my body and to be the judge of my own limits in a way that in the long run really helped us. Um, and there were times that, you know, I had to say, okay, we need to slow down a little bit. And then 20 K later, I was feeling amazing and we attacked and we were off the front and won by minutes. Um, and you just think about those moments. It's not always a sign of weakness. A lot of times it's a sign of strength to be able to ride within your limits. I'm going to cut this out for Sophia because she's faster than me and then she just <laughs> needs to slow down a little bit. How do you do pacing? One second, one yeah. really quick thing that like, Kate, I think you pointed out something that was really important. There is the fact that sometimes you can feel really bad and it's probably tempting to kind of seal the fate or like tell the story of the day right then be like, man, I feel really bad. I'm just not going to be able to do well today. That's like the next part that follows. I feel really bad, but really there's no point in saying that because you might feel better later on. Right. That's another good point with the Cape Epic. It's so long and there's so many different aspects to it and the terrain changes and the climate changes throughout the race. Um, for me, my goal of the ride, which I did not accomplish, was not to be pushed by Annika. Because the year before, she had pushed her partner so much that she developed a back injury oh and, like, that they had to deal with. Um, and so I was like, my one goal is that she doesn't have to push me. And she did have to push me for like two minutes on the time trial day. Um, and I was like, no. And she's like, we got to do it. I, I feel good. We got to do it. <laughs> And the next day I was so bummed. I was like, it's over. It's day five. I've cracked. And I woke up the next day and I felt amazing. And actually that was the one day where I was climbing. Annika said, please don't go any faster. Like this is good. And I was like, yes, done. <laughs> so that's a good example of, you know, one day you might feel like you're about to quit and go home. And then, you know, the next day you're doing the same thing. You're always going as hard as you can. You're always focused on pushing that limit, but your limit one day might not be that impressive and your limit the next day might be dusting the field. 
Mm-hmm. That was going to be my next question is how do you pace the eight days? So it's because seven stages, it's a prologue that's like an hour-ish long and then seven days. Are you 100% on the prologue, 100% on stage one, or on, are you kind of like going 95 so that you go faster overall? Pacing is an interesting one. Uh, I think, so for me, and I, I felt this at the beginning in World Cups, I felt this in the Cape Epic, I believe that my job in training is to prepare my body to do what I need to do to be competitive in the race. So I'm not trying to like manage my pace and make it easier in the race. I'm trying to prepare to be able to not think about, can, should I attack? What if I get tired on day six? I need to believe that, okay, it's day one. We have an hour and a half time trial. I'm going to race it like a cross country race. And then I need to be able to recover for the next day. Um, and that like the preparation part is the part you can't overlook. I did, you know, so many big days, so many big days in a row. Um, I do respond pretty well to this type of training and racing in general. So that was a a big bonus, but we did the Kate Epic, uh, you know, in February of that year, which was the silly stage race that we made up for me to do by myself at home. And I did, I did group rides that were super hard. I did, couple grasshopper races in there that were impossible. Um, and there was no downside. I wasn't afraid of blowing up because we said, okay, if I really push it too hard and I don't feel well or I get sick or something happens, then we just stop. I just don't do it tomorrow. Um, and again and again, we found that my body adapted well and I would push harder than I thought I could and be able to replicate it the next day. Um, so when I got to the Cape Epic and, you know, we're 50 kilometers into a race and someone attacks at, you know, an XC pace attack, I know that I can go with it and I know that I can, can do it. Um, and if you have doubts about that, then you aren't in the race. So we're going to talk a little bit about recovery just in general training, but I want to focus specifically on inside of a stage race and inside of this stage race, very hectic. It's hot. I don't think you had to sleep in a tent. You probably had a, did you have a trailer? Or did, yeah, you trailer. Shout out to the amateurs, mad respect. <laughs> what did you, uh, how did you manage recovery in between stages? And then what was like, what was your sleep schedule like? Did you get a lot of sleep? How did you manage that? Um, sleep schedule is a little bit challenging because you wake up around five every day. Uh, I'm someone who needs to eat a little bit before I start riding. I think some other people will, will tighten that window more and more as the stage race goes on. Um, But yeah, for me, it was, you know, trying to be asleep by nine, waking up at five. We pretty much finished the stage. And for us, the the thing that I didn't really get before I went is what happens after you finish the stage, which is there's an initial podium, then there's rounds of interviews, then there's a press conference, then there's another podium, then there's (laughs) anti-doping. And so by the time you get to lunch, it's been, you know, an hour and a half to two hours since you finished, you eat lunch usually take a nap, get a massage and it's 9 PM. Um, so it's a pretty well-oiled machine. You kind of get into a rhythm with it and there's actually not a lot of choice in it. You're not thinking, Ooh, should I sleep? You're it's a necessity. Um, I would say for me, a lot of what worked well was really planning my nutrition and having done that Kate Epic block. We tested a lot of things, um, that then helped me a lot in the race and, had just a really good, really particular schedule in terms of, you know, what I'm using to refuel, what I'm using for hydration, uh, what kinds of calories I'm getting in when I get off the bike to when I go to sleep, 
um, and also fueling on the bike. And we looked at maps for each stage and planned out, you know, where there were probably going to be attacks and where I want, you know, more solid food and where I want to be eating more like blocks and chews. Um, and that I think can be really helpful. So what did you eat during a stage? What would be typical? A million things. Uh, <laughs> all of the things. <laughs> all of the things. I, I'm trying to remember exactly what I used. I would start out most days with bars um, because we, the first 50K were typically, you know, mostly together um, and a lot of fire roads. So on the fire roads, I was just in the wheel hanging out. Um, and that I could eat more solid food. And then, you know, when there were attacks, I'd switch to chews or gels and like that more kind of quick, simple sugar. Um, and then in terms of caffeine, the stages are so long that it is, uh, the type of event where you might want caffeine in the middle as well. Um, so I'd have like a Red Bull bottle in the middle. Cool. Okay. Two more questions and we'll, we'll move on. Cause some people like, <laughs> don't want to hear this at all, but, uh, next question is equipment. Like bike setup, um, tires. I think, are you Maxis? Is that correct? Yes. I'm on, did, I love Maxis. <laughs> what tires did you use? And did you have Aspen's the special Aspens? Right and did you use them? <laughs> um, I, this was two years ago. So I've had a lot of sponsor changes since that time. Um, currently, I use Aspens for most everything. And we, the team has pioneered the special Aspens, which we call Fastbins. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. But yeah. In terms of equipment, I would say, so I'm, I'm really fortunate. I work with a personal mechanic, Brad Copeland. Um, and I've been, he was on specialized with me and then moved to Scott Sram to be my personal mechanic. So I've been working with him for five or six years. Um, and I think the one thing that I would advise in terms of equipment is really like spending time with it and making sure that it works for you. So I think it's really easy to get, you know, to listen to the podcast and read the news and see what I'm doing and what other pros are doing and want to just replicate that. Um, but in my opinion, a tire is only good as your familiarity with it. So if you put a new tire on my bike and I go race on it, I'm not going to race as fast as if I'm riding the Aspens at the particular tire pressure that we've tested and that I've raced, uh, you know, dozens of times at this point um, and tested in, you know, race-like efforts far, far more than that. Um, and Brad is, Brad is particularly good at that, especially given I'm very tiny, I have small hands. So we, you know, do a lot of cockpit customization, bring my brakes in really far, always a lot farther than he thinks they will be because my hands are so small. Um, and those little changes I think can make a lot more of a difference than people think about um, because they are just based on how you feel, how you ride, how confidently you're descending and how much you trust your equipment um, to do what you expect it to do. This is a, and we actually, Brad was a podcast guest on this podcast way back when on episode 35. So like turning the time machine way back, it was Brad and I sitting in the specialized hauler, I think at Sea Otter, and he was breaking down all those, all the detailed tips. So super cool episode there and one to look into it. He's, he's fan. He's an incredible guy too. If you see him at the races and he's not too busy, say hi. Cause he's super, super kind. Uh, really probably busy. He's probably busy, <laughs> but yes. Okay. Last question. Go ahead. No, oh, I was just going to say, I was going to say that during quarantine, I've had to do a little bit of my own bike work uh, and I had some 
complicated cassette changes and other more advanced things and ended up like on FaceTime with Brad covered in grease at like midnight. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Brad for that. I just wanted to note quickly the your tip about the breaks. I think that's a huge one because a lot of especially women have smaller hands. And if you have trouble reaching your brakes when you're on your bike, whether it's a mountain bike or a road bike, you're not going to feel completely in control of the machine. And that's really going to affect your confidence, which will affect everything, including your handling. So that's just an important tip to know that you can adjust those brake levers to come closer to the bars. So it's more comfortable for you to get your fingers around them and so that you feel like you have access to your brakes at any time. I I love that. I think that's just a, a great takeaway. I have like an objective measure that I have for that. Like it, the brakes are are in a good position if that first like crease, so basically the first knuckle on your finger, if that brake lever is basically sitting below that, like toward your palm from that, because then that allows you to actually have a finger comfortably rested around it and have the control you need. A lot of the time, especially on road bikes, like you mentioned, Amber, in particular, it's really tough to get that. So Mm -hmm. reach adjust is what it's called usually. And you can Google whatever shifters or brakes or whatever you have, Google that and reach adjust. And you can probably find a way to be able to bring them in close like that. Super good tip. Okay, Kate, last question. Our team or our teams that are competing, we have a few people who are pretty new to mountain biking and one person who used to be really bad and is getting better. Uh, (laughs) What, how technical is it and how much, but, but they have good power to weight ratios. If for you or for your advice for amateurs for this race, how much of like a technical skill do you need and how much should you be focused on power to weight day after day volume, long rides, that sort of thing. That is what I think makes mountain biking racing so fun is that you have to focus on all of it. Um, there's so many different areas where you can get, uh, an advantage. And the first thing I'll say is that having different strengths and weaknesses in a race like the Cape Epic, um, can be advantageous. You know, if one person's a better descender and you can hop on their wheel and follow their line, that's a huge benefit. If one person can pull on the flats in particular, that can be, um, you know, the place where that, that stronger engine comes into play. Uh, the one thing I would say is that the unique descending skill of the Cape Epic is fire road descending. Personally, I am terrified of fire road descending. I never get less terrified. I just kind of, you know, let Jesus take the wheel on that one. But (laughs) I think it's something that you can practice and get more familiar with. You can practice what lines you take. You can, um, you know, practice following someone closely on a fire road because that that also changes the skill. Um, But that's something that, you know, for an XC race, I'd never practice or prepare for. And for the Cape Epic, it becomes really important. Do you have any tips of like technique on a fire road descent? Um, I, I would say practice. I think for me, it's always shocking that you don't slide out and die when you take certain lines on the fire roads. That's always something that you have to kind of do a few times to trust. Uh, again, with tire choice, if you know your tires really well, if you're comfortable on your tires, and especially if you can run a little bit lower pressure, um, that will be a big help there. Uh, but for me, it was just following Annika and, you know, at times like wanting to close my eyes <laughs> and just let go of the brakes. <laughs> I, I, I feel like we should switch the order of the doc that we have right here. And we should actually go into technical skill. Um, mm-hmm. like, and talk about that in general. Uh, so I, I, I'm an XC nerd and I watch a lot of XC racing while I'm training and everything else. And, I want to kind of talk about cracking the world cup nut, so to speak, because it seems like a difficult one to crack. And it's interesting. And and we even see it, Amber, you know, we, you see it on the road over in Europe too, in the sense that like 
um, when circumstances change, it's difficult to be able to just replicate the same results, right? And and you can't just like copy paste and everything is just as easy as it once is. So, uh, Kate, I want to like kind of open up before we get into the technical skills talk. What's so hard about UCI World Cup cross country racing? Like like what makes it unique to being able to be successful domestically in the U.S. to being successful over in Europe? What's unique and difficult about it? I would say there's a few things, um, but interestingly enough, when we're talking about the technical skill, I think. You know, a lot of these courses, people can really comfortably ride and practice. Uh, I think the physical demands of the racing and the level of the racing is what makes it even more technical. Um, And I like to talk about it as you have like tickets to entry into a race. So to be in a World Cup race, you have to be able to do a certain power for 15 seconds to get off the line. You have to be able to do it for two minutes to get into the single track in a good position. You have to be able to do it for 15 minutes to stay in that group. And, you know, it's like lap three where the real racing begins. Um, And I think you do see a lot of riders who are incredibly uh, good technical riders who either, you know, can't quite do the power to get clear air to show their technical skill. Um, So if you're stuck right behind someone, you're you're not going to go faster than them. Um, And then the second thing is that if you're, you know, way over the red zone, you're not going to be descending very well. So um, I think it is that kind of like front group who has the power to stay in that group, stay up far enough that they can demonstrate their technical skill and then also be, you know, far enough, like within their comfort zone that they can keep it together and descend well throughout the race. Um, So I think it is partially the technical skill, but I think also the demands of the race are a huge reason that you see maybe technical riders who are great. You see them in practice, you've ridden with them. They're fantastic. And then uh, things fall apart on lap four or five. <laughs> we know that you recently were up in Lake Tahoe with friend of the podcast, Katerina Nash, previous guest as well. And, and she, she even donned a blonde wig. So she'd look like your competition, which I thought was hilarious. Um, <laughs> but she, uh, you, and you were up there and you were riding some pretty gnarly trails up there. And, and I assume working on your technical skill, but do you do any specific things? You know, I'm sure you train specifically as we know on the bike and the gym, everything else. Do you do specific things to work on your technical skill on the bike? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I've been working on it. So for me, when I first started racing world cups, I went over to Europe when I was 17 and did Nova Meso and Labresse. uh, Nova Meso, I did pretty well. And Labresse was actually the only race I've ever DNF'd. Um, I like could not ride the course. I fell down three rock gardens and ended up not finishing. Um, and after that trip, I came home and said, like, I need to be able to ride these courses. I need to be able to take the A lines. What do we do to get there? Um, the first thing, and I think the biggest kind of jump was going to skills camp with USA cycling. We went up to Bellingham. Um, I did some skills camps with Leah Davison and we started, you know, progressing our drops and jumps and, and these features. Um, and that's something that I'm still working on. When I was with Katarina, we did a few pretty scary, uh, scary little ones. We did a big rock drop that I had seen a video of. And I said, I want to do that. And then we got there and I said, Ooh, it looks a lot bigger. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But Katarina had done it and she, you know, let me follow her off it. She explained like how it kind of goes. Um, 
And it's a big feature. She was saying, you know, she doesn't ride it when she's riding normally there. So it was cool to be able to kind of step up to the plate and hit that and feel really good about it. Um, and then chase the blonde wig off of it. <laughs> and then later down the trail, we actually, we ran into some other riders and there's this river gap that Katarina, I guess, hadn't done ever in, you know, all the time that she's been riding there. And for some reason, that one looked less scary to me. So I was like, let's do it. And we like followed these guys off the river jump. And, you know, for both of us, I think that was a really cool day. It's exciting to push your limits and even more so to do it with other women, I think, and women who, um, you know, especially with Katarina, Katarina is one of the best ascenders I've ever ridden with, but she's also smart. And she's really, she takes risks based on her skill. She doesn't just kind of send whatever. She's uh, really intentional in what she does. And she'll tell me, she'll say, hey, this is a little sketchy, but you can do it. Um, or she'll say, this is a little sketchy and you shouldn't do it, uh, <laughs> which I appreciate. Um, but yeah, I will, the last thing I'll say is in terms of practicing technical skill, I think people have a misconception that, you know, what we did in those videos is the only way to practice. Um, and I did for a long time, for a long time, I was obsessed with rocks, drops and rock gardens and these features that seemed intimidating on world cup courses. Um, but in recent years, and especially after, you know, getting the opportunity to work with Thomas Frischneck and, and really practice my descending with him, I've learned that a lot of speed can be picked up in between those and that, you know, you can go out no matter where you live, no matter what trails you have and practice something, whether it's braking, whether it's high speed descending, whether it's cornering, you know, set up cones and practice cornering. Uh, all of those skills can really impact your riding. Um, and you can do them intentionally as like a breakout thing, or you can just put intent behind the riding you're doing in your everyday training. Mm. XC courses are getting so visually intense in that regard, in the sense like the rock gardens look scary and that sort of stuff that it's easy to get a false positive and to think that like the scary part, visually scary part is where that person lost the time. But that's such a good point. If you look at whenever, um, like, like Nino is, is, you know, when Nino goes to the front before a descent, it's chances are he's going to get a gap. And if you look at it, the gap is extended over the whole thing, not just the technical parts. So that's a, and anybody can work on that. I, you know, if you live in the flattest of flat places, you can work on corners and that's still going to help you. So that's, that's a cool point there. Um, right, it's not, it's not just the, uh, the Instagram worthy tricks and skills, right. <laughs> that are going to yes. make the difference. I just think it would be cool to be biking and then like have Katarina Nash and Kate Courtney, like come by you. And you're like, who are those people? Just, <laughs> <laughs> that is yeah, crazy. I am so slow. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be pretty awesome. Uh, so I'll, alongside this too, and I have to ask this question. It was a user submitted question that people were wanted to know um, because it's a question of much hot debate, uh, including with Katarina even, but it's, are XC courses actually getting more technical? Do you feel that way? I know you haven't been racing them for, you know, 10, 15 years or anything like that, but do you feel that they're getting more technical or do you feel like once again, fitness is like the bigger barrier and it's actually not that big of a deal? So I, oddly enough, I have been racing world Cups for eight years. <laughs> you feel very old. Um, I, from what I've seen when I was a junior and, you know, talking to people like Georgia Gould and Katarina and Leah, who were a few years ahead of me, things changed really quickly during that period of time. So things got way more technical. And every year, every race I'd go to, they seemed like they were getting more technical. Um, the best example of which is Peter Mardsburg was a really technical course with 
features that were not just challenging, but dangerous. And people started getting hurt. Um, and people got hurt in Cairns, Australia, when I was a junior as well. Um, so I remember, you know, you'd have a couple broken collarbones and a couple broken ankles at every race. And I think after that, uh, they kind of backed off a little bit and we had this middle part. So they, they do put big features um, on some events and they added, you know, a big drop at Mont Saint-Anne, for example, this year, but it's so well built. It's not a sketchy, weird, really dangerous feature. Um, and I think in that case, they've really listened to the feedback of the riders in terms of what makes something technical and fair and challenging versus what makes something dangerous and risky and unfair to ask people to do on a cross country bike when they're cross ed. Is Mont Saint-Anne the most technical course that you come across, uh, for the whole season? It's tough to say Mont Saint-Anne in the rain, I would say. <laughs> Looks terrifying. <laughs> it's very different. Um, and I'm still kind of shocked when I go there and I remember that I was riding the Beatriz at 16. It wasn't pretty, but I got down. <laughs> um, and I, I remember I used to like lie awake at night and think about like, is it raining right now? Am I racing in the rain? <laughs> like, um, cause that's, that changes the course a lot. I would say, um, yeah, Nova Mesto is a pretty technical course and Monsignan as well. Um, but both are, they stayed pretty much the same for the last five to 10 years. Kate, how much do you time do you spend on your cross country bike versus like bigger travel bikes for training technical skills? I just got a bigger travel bike, which is pretty exciting. Um, typically, so 2020, I don't know if anyone knows, it's been a little bit of a weird year. Uh, <laughs> a little bit, little bit non-standard. Um, so for me, this year has been an opportunity to spend more time riding trails in the States and different places. So I've spent time in Tahoe. I've spent a ton of time in Downeyville um, and just gotten to kind of reconnect with that really fun technical trail riding. And I did get, I got a Scott Genius, which is a bigger travel bike. Um, the colorway has not been announced yet. So I've been posting black and white photos, but I'm really excited to share uh, that bike. And I think it's going to be a great training tool in the future. Um, but in typical seasons, I'm, you know, doing a lot of base and then we start racing and then I'm only home for a few weeks at a time, or I'm only, you know, focused on technical skill for a few weeks at a time. And that to me, um, means it's, it's better to stay on my cross country bike typically. Mm. Uh, I want to talk, spend some time to talk strength training too. This is also a big request from the listeners of the podcast and you, you're not all athletes share, I guess what they do for strength training, not saying that you share your exact training plan and everything else that you do, but you do share about it. So what role does strength training play for you, especially like in particular as like a cross country mountain biker, how does strength training play a role and how necessary is it for you? I love it. I'm a huge fan of strength training. Um, I've done it since I was, since I started, uh, which was actually a little bit controversial at the time. I came from a ski racing background where strength training was just part of what you did. Um, and I remember my mountain bike coach in high school was like, you're going to be too tired to train on your bike. You can't do that. Um, but for me, I think it was related to how I felt, uh, as a, you know, 16 year old, 15 year old girl trying to, you know, chase down the boys and, and, improve my technical skills. 
I felt stronger when I was doing work in the gym. And I felt like that strength equated to more control of my bike and the control of my bike allowed me to go faster. Um, and I still feel that way. I think that, you know, I'm not as naturally like built uh, in terms of upper body, but what I do in the gym makes a huge difference in how comfortable I feel at speed on technical terrain on my bike. Um, and I think I, I hear that feedback from a lot of women that start doing strength training as well. I think that women are less kind of built naturally in their upper body. I don't know if that's a scientific fact, but who knows? Uh, <laughs> we, we, we say that plenty of times. We say we have no science to back this up, but, and then we share whatever there, we feel. There is science on that though. This yeah. is a guess I have. Um, but I do think that, you know, that sense of control, that sense of strength and power um, is really confidence inspiring. And I think that that makes a huge difference in descending capability and descending speed. Um, I will also say that since that time, we've worked to really integrate my strength training with what I do on the bike. And that has actually led to a lot of gains, mostly in terms of short-term power, um, but also in terms of just overall strength and ability to produce power in general. So I love that. I think, oh, go ahead, Amber. <laughs> I, think, I think so many cyclists are worried about bulking up with strength training and especially women in particular. Um, cause it's like, Oh, you know, you think about power to weight and you're like, want to add more mass on my upper body. But the point you just made about the strength and the confidence that that lends, I mean, that's huge. And you don't want to discount that in the overall picture of performance. Do you feel like that? Oh, I think we may have lost Amber. Possibly she froze. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I got another question. Uh, what Amber comes back. Do you have any um, exercises that you said are very specific to mountain biking that you could share with us? Yes. <laughs> I, so we talked about this uh, before we did the podcast, but you know, what I share on social media, I love to share about, you know, some aspects of my training and strength training in particular. And I usually share like core balance, that kind of stuff. Um, but I think what's important to acknowledge is that my my entire training plan is so integrated. So everything I do has a purpose and is integrated in between a bunch of other stuff that's not shown. Um, so even a strength workout, I have a huge dynamic warm up. I have really particular things I'm doing to get my body ready to produce that kind of power. Then the lifting corresponds specifically to what I'm doing on the bike. And then maybe we toss in the core and balance, which is typically what I share, partially because it's a little easier to integrate. I, I think the heavier weights uh, require a little more intention and hopefully management by a strength coach to prevent you from getting hurt and to make it effective in your training. Um, so I try not to just like share a little like, oh, do a deadlift, do a squat, um, because you can really, you know, you can use so many different exercises if you're integrating them into a circuit and they match up with your training and they're targeted towards a specific goal. Um, and so, you know, when people ask my advice about what they should be doing in the gym, if at all possible, my biggest advice is to hire a strength coach or hire your PT to give you, you know, a list of things that you need to be working on and a list of things that you can do. Um, and I work with my PT and my physical therapist and my strength coach uh, to both, you know, design this program and to integrate like any imbalances I have, any things we need to be working on from a physical therapy perspective goes into my warm up or into my cool down or adds in somewhere in there um, to make sure that we're getting the most benefit possible from the work I am doing. How do you balance with training? Like, do you do it 
right after training, like a, a cycling training? Do you do it before? Do you do it before? Do you skip it before a big day? I, I struggle with this myself because I'll do too much. And then the next day I won't be able to do my workout. So I think some of it is trial and error. I've certainly, I've felt that I've had that happen. That happened a few weeks ago uh, where I went out to do a workout and I was like, Jim, I just, I am, do not have it today. And he was like, okay, I think, you know, you didn't recover yesterday because you had the strength workout and maybe we need to add another easy day. Um, so it, it is about communication, listening to your body and, and being willing to adapt, uh, cause it won't always be perfect. Um, but I think for me, the trial and error has yielded some, some good rules of thumb for me personally. I typically do best if I do strength training first thing in the morning. Um, there's actually a lot of research that it works better in the afternoon and that you should, you know, ride your bike in the morning and, uh, do it in the afternoon, but it just didn't work for me. Um, and I would end up super, super sore. I, my training quality in the afternoon is not as high as in the morning. I'm a morning person. So I do it first thing in the morning, um, and then have, you know, at least a four to five hour break and then do a spin in the afternoon. Um, that's what works for me. Truly. Like it is not what the research says is the best thing. Um, so if you're going to try it, I would recommend trying riding first and then strength training after. Um, but for me, something about doing a spin before I go to sleep and having that big window to make sure I'm not kind of interfering with the training adaptations of strength training. Um, but having that spin before I go to sleep, I recover 10 times faster from the strength training. I feel better. And so that, that's what we've ended up doing. Um, but I, again, I would say test it out, see what works in your training, communicate with your coach and make sure your coach and your strength coach are communicating. That, that's a good segue. Are we good to go to recovery? One, one quick thing that I want to cover on actually on this is you mentioned that it's integrated. So I assume that you also mean that it's like periodized as well, right? In the sense that like, you're probably not lifting crazy amounts like right before world champs, I assume. <laughs> Absolutely not. No. So it's, it's periodized in that way. I would say one of the positives of this year um, is that I have had a chance to do a second whole cycle of weight training. So I was able to do another big heavy cycle. I don't know if I was at altitude camp in July and was posting like hugely heavy deadlifts. I was hitting PRs in that, um, which was really exciting. And I think partially a product of going through that cycle again in one year um, versus normally we, we finish lifting heavy uh, in March-ish and then I go into more of a explosive and race prep block. Um, but yeah, I, I think that periodization is really important and especially around races. Yeah, for sure. Um, actually, before we get into recovery, let's cover nutrition. Uh, we should get into that topic for sure. Um, uh, one, and it's like you, the, something really interesting that you've been pointing out. It's kind of a theme here, Kate, is like uh, experimentation and figuring out what works for you, for sure. Um, and, and Amber, it's probably best to have you lead through this one on, on nutrition if you want to jump into that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's the perfect segue. Um, we did get a chance to chat earlier this week and prepping for the podcast a little bit about this. Um, and you did mention that you work with a nutritionist um, and there've been a few things about that that have worked for you, but that one of the key takeaways for you was actually figuring out what works best for you. And I think that's, that's a really important takeaway um, that it's not one size fits all, but can you tell us a little bit about working with a nutritionist and, and some of the things that you've learned with that? Yeah, definitely. So I, I worked with Kyle Fappenbach, who I know that, um, Amber, you worked with as well. We're big Kyle fans. I'm going to make him listen to this. Um, but I think, you know, Kyle's really a scientist more than I would say 
a nutritionist. Like he, he really pours over the data. Um, and I, I think that style works really well for me. I'm someone who's always kind of been a nerd in that way. And I think the biggest thing that I really took away from going to college was being able to, uh, be really objective and, and really analyze data that's coming out of these studies. So to understand how a study works, like how are they getting this data? What population are they using? For women, I think that's another thing to just keep your eye on is a lot of these nutrition studies are done with 100% male cyclists. Yeah. Um, so there, there's no data on whether it works for you or not. Um, and beyond that, I think that we're all really unique individuals with unique physiology. Um, the demands I'm putting on my body are very unique. And what I'm asking it to do is very unique. So that's a place where you know, the data isn't hundred percent, you know, certain or right that this is the thing you need to do and you need to be on this plant-based diet and you need to only eat like fats and you need to, you know, all of those kind of big sweeping changes, um, I find can be more detrimental than positive. And for me, you know, using it as a sample size of one, as a case study of Kate Courtney, uh, and working with this amazing team I have to test everything out and see how it works. Um, I think you can set up little studies for yourself. We were talking about, uh, you know, I've, I've had issues with gluten in the past and that was something we couldn't really figure out, but we did these tests where I'd like eat it and ride or eat it a few days in a row and, you know, see how I felt. And I felt really bad. Uh, and that was, you know, not based on, Oh, everyone says you need to go gluten free <laughs> or everyone's doing this or, you know, all the research says this it's it's do you feel better when you do this versus this um and that i've we talked about this in the pre-show as well i was hesitating to give specifics because i think people are always like well but you do it so i'm going to be gluten-free um and honestly like if if i could eat gluten i would like i think that <laughs> it's a great source of fuel uh and i think that you know it's something that can be very individual mm -hmm. yeah i like that because it's 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 testing and it's testing an assumption and then seeing how it plays out for you. Cause as we all know, there are so many different things that can affect performance and outcome and how we feel. And sometimes it really is maybe just as simple as, do you feel better doing this? Yeah. yeah. Another a good example that just occurred to me. Um, I also can't have like synthetic caffeines that are in like something like a noon caffeine tablet or like mm -hmm. a lot of those caffeines or certain ones that, uh, give me a migraine and make me like really sick to my stomach. So that's an example where, you know, you test it out, you try it in training um, and you say, no, this doesn't work for me or there must be a better option. Um, and I think you can use research and use, you know, common practices and, you know, look at what other people are doing that have been successful in the sport to give you that starting point. Um, but from there, it's really you know, what is going to make you feel and perform your best as an athlete. I love that. It's such a good, like just general framework approach to this. Um, I'd love to drill down a little bit on how your approach to fueling your training specifically. Um, and it doesn't, we don't have to get it into nitty gritty, but just sort of like, what's your approach with, you know, before, during, after is that different, you know, depending on what kind of training you're doing or the time of year. Um, yeah. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think carbs are awesome. I'm a big fan <laughs> of carbs. Really, we didn't pay her to say that, by the way. Just <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think for me, and and we talked about this a little bit as well in terms of um, you know weight is something that you have to consider heading into huge events. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, the priority in the past few years has been fueling the higher training loads. Um, so I've seen huge gains being able to just kind of push harder in training, be really consistent, do the higher volume, which I respond well to. Um, and that requires fuel. So for me, like if I'm fueling well and training really hard, I'm getting stronger, but I'm not losing weight. My body's at a set point where it's really comfortable and I have, you know, what I need to be performing and training. Um, and then when it comes to, you know, a couple weeks before world championship, I'm no longer really like building a ton of fitness. We're tapering, we're sharpening up. Uh, my caloric needs are lower. Um, and at that time, you know, we're, we're never changing the pre during and after training. Um, it's the after training to dinner time where there's, you know, like a lot of snacking. That's the thing that is <laughs> right before world championships. Um, but I think that's something that I really like to mention because I think if you say, Oh, I don't worry about weight at all. That's almost more anxiety provoking than, you know, being honest and having open communication about it. Um, and I think if you don't, you know, if you don't feel that training for whatever reason, you're not going to perform well. I don't care how much weight you lose. Um, you have to be able to build the strength and be able to keep up with the demands of the race, um, in order to perform well. Right. You have to, you have to be able to do the work in the first place. You have to do the work to be able to do the work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You mentioned something really cool in the, in the pre recording, you said it, it doesn't matter. Like you don't win from being skinny. Mm-hmm. Right. Can you, can you say what you said before about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, I've been thinking about this a little bit. Um, I think, you know, in terms of your career in whatever you do, no one's going to be like, Oh, remember that girl, Kate, she was so skinny and it was awesome. Like it really inspired. <laughs> like, not, no one's ever said that it's, you know, she was so strong. She was brave. She performed well. She wasn't afraid to attack. She was, uh, you know, really determined. It's all of these other things that make you a great athlete and that um, allow you to perform beyond what you think is possible. And I think for me, the big switch really happened last year. Uh, you know, I've, I've worked with Kyle and Jim and all of my team for now three or four years collectively. And throughout that time, I remember Kyle has said to me every year, you know, we're still figuring out what your ideal weight is. So just we're not going to monitor it during these phases of training, like you need to make sure you're getting enough fuel. So I do, I track macros and you need to make sure you're, you know, staying healthy, but we're going to see where your body ends up. Uh, and I think that was a little stressful for me at first and remembering, you know, my weight as a junior racer, it was a little bit hard to wrap my mind around, okay, I'm going into this like so much heavier, but at Alstat and Novomesto last year, that was the heaviest I've ever raced a world cup race. And I won both by over a minute. And like, I say this not to be like, oh, I'm so great. I say this to to encourage people to really like be open to where your body will perform the best. And the reason that I performed so well in those races is because I was really strong. Um, And I was able to produce the power I needed to have really successful races. And I was also really healthy. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, long-term, if we can all kind of work towards our best healthy and strength, uh, ratio in terms of racing at the top level, I think that can be a lot more successful. 
Yeah, big time. I mean, part of having a successful career, and even if it's not your aspiration, is is not being sick and injured at key points of your career, because that can be such a huge setback. And just avoiding those types of setbacks is huge. And having a resilient body that's healthy, it's a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. What do you, how do you, I guess, are you the sort of rider? So Nate and I, and, and, and I, I don't know if Amber's fully on this train, but I'm like laser focused when I ride. I'm like, I know that I need 90 to hundred, hundred grams of carbs an hour basically is like what I shoot for. Do you do that with, I mean, cause cross country racing, it's really hard to even get fuel down a lot of the time, uh, because it's really difficult. So, uh, how do you build out your race plan strategy for nutrition? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is having a plan. Um, I will say that, you know, <laughs> having it in your mind, I need this much per hour. Um, if you know it's going to be hard to eat and drink, plan out where you're going to eat and drink. Plan out what you're going to be getting in the feed zone. Uh, figure out where you can put your gels and your chews so that you can reach them and get them uh, in key places on the race course. And I think, um, you know, it's kind of that tedious <laughs> preparation that really allows you to perform best in the race, but it's something that I swear by and that anyone can do. It's, it's not hard to go through the race and spend time doing that. Um, it's just a little bit tedious. Mm. So do you take in like gels and, or, or, or sort of like quick processing things in the middle of a cross country race? Cause plenty of folks say it's 90 minutes. That's not long. You don't need to take in anything. I, I would disagree with that. I think, uh, <laughs> fueling a cross country race is really important partially because, um, you know, I, I always like to say it's like sprinting a marathon because it's really high intensity, but it's long, uh, an hour and a half is not a short time to be racing. If you're doing it, you know, as we said, like above FTP, really those like short bursts, um, and they burn a lot of carbohydrates. So that's something where if you can refuel in the race, Hopefully that allows you to have, you know, your fastest slap on the last lap. I I want to, I want to say this because this, that what you just said gets, people say this all the time. They say 90 minutes, you won't run your glycogen stores down all the way, but the less they go down, the higher, the easier the RP will be and the faster you will go. So, and that is like, we've got a world champ here just saying with experience and actually every single pro we've talked to says the exact same thing. There's no high level pro that's like, just water, you're fine. Like you don't need anything else. Uh, it's always the opposite. Water. Yeah. They're usually the mid pack, mid pack riders with excuses are the ones that are saying just water. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. Take it from the pros. Uh, so need the fuel. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned Kate that you like, actually like you even spend time talking to your nutritionist before races, right? Like building out a specific plan like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kyle and I spend a lot of time on the phone. Um, (laughs) But for me, I I do think it's just, again, like having those plans in place. It's the same as having your training lead up to the race and having it planned out in a way that you show up on racing and you feel confident in what you've done. And you say, okay, I can do that two minute power. I can do that five minute power. Um, It's the same thing with nutrition. It's okay. I've tested this. I know that I need this, this, and this, and this is how we're going to execute it tomorrow. Um, and that's, you know, another layer of my race day plan. In an I like that. And you're not, oh. <laughs> you're not showing up on race day, wondering what you're going to do or having to decide what you're going to do. You've made those decisions ahead of time. You have the plan and it just takes that cognitive load down on race day. It's, it's one less thing you have to think about. In an XCO mm-hmm. race, are you ever looking, sometimes two, you're off the front. Are you pacing based on your power meter on climbs? And do you have a plan ahead of time to do that? 
Interesting question. I So the first race I ever raced where I had power and I looked at it was World Championships uh, in 2018. Uh, and that was the reason I looked do? at it. Just kidding. It went okay. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I looked at it was because there was a two-minute road climb. Um, so that's like incredibly consistent. I had done two-minute efforts and we had this like really specific lens hide workout that I'd been doing for months. Um, and I knew exactly what I could do. I knew what I could do when I was tired. I knew what I could do when I was fresh. And um, over and over again in training, I saw that, you know, a 20 watt difference in what I was doing could mean either I could do it 20 times or I would not be able to do it again. Um, and that was like a fine line for me of, okay, this is the highest I can achieve and do it every single time until the last lap. Um, and so I, I kept an eye on that in the race. And I think actually it, did help me like the the decisive moment in the race was the last lap Annika attack just destroyed me um and part of my decision making I was like okay here I am I know she's gonna attack how hard can I go like and not how hard am I willing to you know fall on my sword for like you can always go harder but if you stop pedaling or you make a technical mistake after it um, it can cost you the race. And so I knew in that moment that, you know, her 32nd minute power was going to be so much higher than what I could sustain. And that if I just did a good two minute, like that was the best that I could do. And if I like, if I got a silver medal, to be honest, that was like already better than I thought I could do, but I wasn't going to like blow myself up in 30 seconds and limp it in for the silver medal. I was going to ride the best last lap I could possibly ride. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it's not a specific number. I'm not saying on the last lap that I'm like, Oh, okay. And no, I'm sorry. Can you slow down? I like, I can't go five watts higher. It's more, you know, if you think you're going to be doing something within a 50 watt range and someone's a hundred watts higher than that, you are pretty sure you're not going to be able to do that for two minutes, right? You're pretty sure that something bad's going to happen to your body soon. Um, and I think that's a time when it was helpful. Uh, I, I don't race with power in most races where there's not something decisive like that and where I have information to help me make good pacing decisions. Um, I do sometimes in the U.S. Like if I, if I think I'm going to be alone, uh, it can be helpful to pace. Um, or just to even like keep an eye on it. And a lot of times I, I will say in like local races in Europe, I will do it as like training for a world cup. Um, and I'll watch my power to see like, okay, how much can Yolanda do? And I'll like watch it and like watch her and get <laughs> a lot of information about what her curve looks like. That's yeah. pretty awesome. Um, I want to go into recovery. Now you are known for doing a ton of volume. I was talking to Keegan about you and Keegan's like, she does more volume than I do, which is crazy. <laughs> and that's very specific to different riders. But obviously if you do that much volume, you probably focus on recovery and take recovery very seriously. So what do you do for recovery? What tips do you have for all of us who, I think for most of us, recovery is our, we're the worst at it for normal, normal humans. <laughs> <laughs> It's oddly enough, one of the hardest parts of training. Um, I think it's tough, you know, when you're trying to get sympathy for having to take a nap, but uh, it, it can be really challenging to be disciplined in that way. And I think it's, it feels really good to go out and smash your power numbers and do a really hard workout. And it feels 
less good to sit on the couch and uh, really, you know, foam rolling does not feel that good doing all your mobility. A lot of it is just, it's easy to kind of overlook or talk yourself out of. Um, and for me, like that is my job. My job is to train really hard and then ensure that I do what I need to do in the short window I have to be able to do it again. Um, and so most of my time off the bike is spent, you know, really diligently looking after those things. It's nutrition, it's hydration, it's mobility, it's taking naps, it's making sure I get good sleep at night. Um, all of those things have to be managed and it's not super complicated, but actually forcing yourself to do it every day can be a bit difficult. Do you use any products? I do. So I, my overarching big one is whoop. Um, I use whoop to track recovery. I was showing you guys my whoop tan has gotten absolutely out of control this year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think it's really helpful, particularly for tracking sleep. Just having, you know, that measurement is really important. Um, I think it also can be a good indicator in training of when you can go harder and, and maybe when you need to take a day off. Um, I know I, I told you guys in the, in the, pre-conversation that for me, I think whoop score is like nine days out of 10. I wake up in the morning, I sit up in bed and I could tell you almost exactly what my whoop score is. Um, I know how I feel. I know what I've been doing in training. I, I can guess. I know how I slept. Um, and it's that 10th day where either I'm a lot better than I thought it would be, or I'm a lot worse than I thought it would be, uh, that it's really incredibly valuable information. Um, and that means that either we take a day off where we thought I was going to add a day to the block, or it's actually happened the other way. A lot of times where with something like the Kate Epic or one of these big training blocks, I'll wake up expecting to be, you know, completely toast. to have a rest day. I'm expecting to be done. And I wake up and I feel really good. And my heart rate variability is really high. And my resting heart rate is really low. And I got really high quality sleep and I call Jim and say, okay, I think I can train another day. Um, and the, the addition of those days adds up. Uh, and it really is the kind of 1% difference where, okay, I did a nine day block, like how long was my competitor's block? Um, and that's a good, good way to use it. I think in terms of other recovery products, I use a lot of hyperice products. So they have the Hyperbolt, um, which I really like. And I think also it's a little bit like foam rolling, but you can lay on your couch while you do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it feels better. Um, so that's something I try to do every day. And then I use the Normatec boots a lot. And it's again, um, you know, couple that with something, watch TV while you do it or read a book or um, make it something that feels a little bit luxurious and restful. And I think that mental side of it can also help aid in your recovery. We use Normatec boots here and we'll use them in meetings. We'll yes. just have them and we just switch them around. And it's if, like if, the culture here, which is pretty cool. If you're like quiet during a lot of our meetings, you'll hear like the air releasing from the boots <laughs> and then cycling back up. Yep. <laughs> We're how, always using them. How do you um about for the Normatec, uh, how long do you use that for? And then how do you use the gun? How long do you use that for? And then which one do you do first? And then where do you put that in terms of training afterwards before it's a lot of questions, but it, so I would say, um, one thing that I've tried to do in recent years is be a little bit more flexible and listen to my body and, you know, respond to the situation, but make sure that I'm doing all those things. Um, so I'd say as a junior, I was more of like, okay, I'm going to ride and then I'm going to do core for 10 minutes. And then I'm going to do this for 10 minutes. And then I'm, and I'd have this huge structure. And 
it wasn't always the most efficient plan. You know, sometimes you get back from a ride, you're like road in the rain and you're freezing cold, get your recovery drink and get in the shower. And maybe you do it, the mobility at 5 PM after you've taken a nap. Um, and that might be the most efficient and effective way to recover that day. So I think there needs to be a level of flexibility in when you do things, but I also do respond well to a program and to having some kind of barriers around it. Um, so with Normatech, I honestly try to just do that after dinner. Usually I'll do it while we're watching TV or just hanging out. And, and that's something that's like a relaxing, uh, end of the day thing. Um, Hypervolt, I use the gun. I'll use it before a ride if something's really tight or feels a little funky. Um, and that might just be like a localized, go straight to it, uh, work on it for a little bit and then go ride. Um, and then they actually just came out with an app. So they have like different athletes will have, you know, guides of what they do before and after. And hopefully I think I'm going to have uh, a little workout on the app that will be an after cycling. Sweet. <laughs> we have one more recovery question. How much sleep do you, need? this is so personal, but I think it's just interesting. How much sleep do you need in order to feel good the next day? I... So Whoop has also helped me understand sleep consistency really well. And that's something I don't think people think of enough, um, that if you're sleeping between the same hours every night, that is like the most effective way to get rest. Even if maybe it's not 11 hours, like it's better to get a consistent nine every night. Um, so for me, nine hours in bed, I usually sleep like 1030 to 730 is kind of my ideal. Um, and there's wiggle room on either side. Like if I'm really tired, it's 10 to eight. And uh, you know, I try to get in bed as early as possible, but that window has worked really, really well for me. I get my most quality sleep. Um, and then I'm also able to get out on the bike early enough, uh, that I can come back and take a nap. So I, I try to nap almost every day, especially wow. during hard workouts. Wow. Another, th another thing you mentioned in the pre-meeting here is because this is all part of recovery and we talked about PT earlier, but on episode 222 of our podcast, we had Kelly Sturette from the ready state on, and you also, um, so you work, you, you know, Kelly as well. I think he even mentioned you a couple of times, uh, in, in that podcast, which is pretty cool. But, uh, how do you fit that sort of aspect into your recovery? Because, that sort of, when you're loading your body with this sort of training, it's not just like, you know, foam rolling. It's not just squeezing the legs of the boots, but I'm sure there's actual like reparative work that you're doing. Absolutely. Um, I'm a huge fan of the ready state. Kelly Starrett is awesome and just so knowledgeable. He has a lot of free, uh, guides up on their Instagram if you follow them. So that's a great resource to get started. Um, yeah. But their app has like just short mobility sequences. And for me, as I said, I try to be flexible. Um, you know, Kelly's actually a big advocate of doing different things every day. He doesn't, I, I went to him and I was like, give me a 10 minute thing and I'll do it every day. And he said, I don't want you to do that. Do 10 minutes a day, but like listen to your body if something's tight or if you need to work on your hips or your hamstrings or your upper body, like try a different thing. Uh, and if you do 10 minutes a day, overall, your mobility will increase. Um, and that I think is, is hard for little type A training plan uh, me to work my head around, but it's been really effective. Um, and having the app where you can, you can select something and it'll talk to you for five minutes and you just do it. Uh, it kind of serves as a timer and keeps you a little more accountable. Um, but I'll try to do that. 
I usually end up doing it in the afternoon. So I usually do a really hard workout. I'll, I'll make sure I get a recovery shake. I shower, I eat really good food. I take a nap. And then it's like my second activity um, is maybe doing 20 minutes of yoga and two or three of Kelly's mobility things. Um, and that, and then the gun, and then maybe after dinner, the Normatex. So that's an example of uh, what I might do on a really hard training day. Awesome. I want to get into mental fortitude because, uh, of course me not being UK, I have no clue. So I could be totally wrong, but my perspective from the outside is you do a very, uh, you're a great example of, of how to like deal with mid race adversity and, and find yourself in unexpected situations, but still rise to the occasion. And I want to talk about like specific instances. And the first one I want to talk about is and everybody can go on to Red Bull TV and you can, uh, the Red Bull TV, and you can look up all the cross country races from last year. They have them all up from last year, which is so cool of them because you don't have racing going on right now. So they don't have any new ones to put up. But if you watch Albstadt from last year in Germany, when you were racing on that course, I was like nervous, like sweaty palms when the race went off. Cause I saw how bad it was raining and I knew they had those really long, like wood downhill bridges and stuff. And I was like, please nobody fall on that. And the camera couldn't show it, but you fell on that. And it looked like it must have been a really bad crash. <laughs> and you were in the lead, yet you recovered. And then you managed, like, uh, if, if the transmission had cut out for those 30 seconds that showed the crash, like, nobody would have known. So how did you, how did you rebound from that? Because that's really hard to do, especially when it's in a situation where it's like, look, like the wood was terribly slick. So it's not like you did some big mistake and that caused it. It's sometimes there are things out of your control that just happen. So how did you rebound from that? Yeah, that was a, that was a tense moment. I will say with your comment about being off the front, that is actually when my mom is most nervous at races, <laughs> which I don't get. Like if I'm having a terrible race, my mom's like, it's okay. She'll get them next time. If I'm off the front, she's a basket case. Like she, at Jay, I was leading by, I think two minutes, which is like the safest you could ever be in a cross country race. And she like threw up and <laughs> so, definitely pros and cons to being in that position. Um, I think that moment for me was the culmination of a lot of, uh, mental work. Like I work with a sports psychologist. Um, I spend a lot of time analyzing races, making strategies. I have mantras for every event. Um, and I think for me, in some ways, there was a lot of pressure on me going into that season. I was on a new team. I had the rainbow jersey. Um, everyone kind of was waiting to see if I could repeat what I did uh, in the fall, which is a nice way to say there are a lot of naysayers um, thinking that, you know, it was a fluke and a one-time great performance. Um, so in many ways, that there was pressure. But on the other side of that, personally, I think it was this huge moment of confidence for me, uh, being able to look down, see the rainbow stripes and say, okay, I don't know if I can do this yet. I don't know if I can win a world cup. I've never done it. But at some point, at some point I raced in this field and I won. Uh, so it's not impossible and I might as well try for that. And I think there was this kind of like almost release of pressure for me that, you know, I had a license to go for it. And I felt like, uh, with the rainbow jersey, I kind of like earned my keep for a little while and I could just focus on racing as hard as I could and as well as I could and taking chances and, and going for it. Um, and I knew I was well prepared. I really had, you know, I think 
the rainbow Jersey inspired me to train a lot harder that year and to say, okay, I'm, I'm already good, but what if I could be great? Like, what more can I do? How much harder can I push myself to make it to that next level and to do this Jersey proud? I so, love that. Oh, oh go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, I, I, I love that open-ended curiosity. Cause you, you describe that even in terms of like, what's your ideal body weight? You're not going in with this preconceived notion of, I have to lose so many pounds. I need to be this weight. And when you're looking down at those rainbow stripes, it's not about, you know, looking to the outcome. You're just opening your mind to the possibility that, Hey, this is possible. And then you're chasing it with that sense of curiosity. Like, let's go see what I can do. And I, I just, I love that. I feel like that's such a healthy perspective and so, so inspiring and empowering as well. Thank you. Yeah, it definitely, I, I think it took a little while to get there with that one. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, it, it can be easy to get sucked into different things. And, uh, you know, I think in many ways, your mentality is something that you have to spend time on and, and really think through uh, before those races. Um, and in that moment, when I did crash, it was something that I had thought through, like my goal in that race was to ride like I deserve to win. Um, and when I crashed, it was a reminder of like, Ooh, maybe you're getting a little complacent. Maybe you're not paying attention. <laughs> I need to ride like I deserve to win. Um, And I really wanted to win. And I think that's another thing where when you want to win and it's driven by your own personal aspirations and all this work that you've done towards something and you want to, you know, for me, a huge part of it was like, I I had this new team and the support that I'd gotten from Thomas Frischneck and from the team was absolutely unbelievable. And I wanted to deliver for them and I wanted to deliver for my coaches and I wanted to deliver for my family. And I think all of those things are positive sources of motivation. Um, and if you can harness those, I, I didn't feel like I had to win. I felt like I really wanted to. And so in that moment when I crashed, I didn't allow my mind to kind of go, Oh, you, it's your, it's not your day. It was too good to be true. I just thought, okay, how can I ride better for the next few laps to try not to lose? <laughs> right. And to your point, that was something that you had trained, right? Like this mental fortitude, this resilience, that ability to not fall into the downward spiral of internal talk that we could, you had been really working on that and training it as a skill. I think we might know the same sports psychologist, for that, by the way. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's something that you work on before the day, the same way that you were saying before, you know, you don't you don't show up on the day. I, you're not training in the race and looking at power numbers in the race. You do that work beforehand so that you know on the day you're capable of executing and you're not stopping a question and, and ask yourself, okay, what should I be doing? Can I do this? It's not even part of the equation. You're just there and it's, and it's happening. Mm-hmm. One of the, uh, another situation is the world champs win. And I like how you mentioned it. Like there, there's the, there's like the tickets to entry kind of like you must be this tall to ride this ride. And that's how like you can actually compete. So um, a key thing I want to point out with this, like, so uh, what I'm going to say here is that you weren't like statistically the odds on winner for world championships, but a super important key thing to point out is that you had those tickets to entry and you trained like that, right? Like it wasn't like uh, magic happened and you suddenly superseded yourself and you were able to outperform, you know, what you scientifically could, you had worked for months to be prepared for, I mean, for years to be prepared for that world championships win. But that said, it, it must've been like, you know, when you found yourself in the lead, cause this could happen. And if we're so fortunate us amateurs to be in a situation where we're at the front of a race unexpectedly, or, or we just didn't anticipate that we would be in the situation that we're in. Sometimes it's really easy to doubt yourself in the middle of that. Like, Whoa, do you really belong here? 
or you're getting lucky. And those sort of things can kind of creep into your mind. How did you like rise to the occasion of world champs and just be like, I'm going to win this? Because that's how you raced. It was like so, it was so inspiring to watch. Like you mentioned with watching your power, it was so clear that you had a plan and that you were prepared and that you were executing. It was like, it was like watching MJ on the court again. Like it was so cool. So how, how did you rise to the occasion? Um, what did you do in that moment? I would say beforehand, you know what you were saying about being a little bit of an underdog. I actually think that worked to my advantage. Um, and I got a lot of criticism my first year in elite for going out with the leaders. Uh, people would say, oh, you could have done so much better if you hadn't tried to race at the front for three laps and then dropped back. Um, and I, within my coaching team, like nobody said that because they knew like, I don't care if I get sixth or seventh or eighth. They're the same. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how to win and how to get on the podium. And to do that, I need to know what it feels like to be at the front of the race and I need to be able to stay there. Um, and that's, I think you know, a, a different mindset that maybe saw me go out too hard in a lot of races, um, but believe that Sunday it would stick. And I, I remember Jim always saying that, you know, so like keep going out, doing the best you can, and someday it'll stick and you'll be able to handle this training load and handle this, um, not training load, but handle that demands of the front of the race. Mm-hmm. And I think at Worlds, that was what happened. I was, I was able to stay up in the front much longer than I thought. But to be honest, my goal was my, uh, bronze level goal was to get top 10, which is like on par with what I've done. My silver level goal was to be on the podium, which would be a big step up uh, or no, it was top five. And then my gold was being on the podium and winning a medal. So you can see from that kind of setup, it Monty okay. is back there, by the way. Yes. Yeah. Give him, give him the attention he needs. He should show. There he is. <laughs> Got to plug his Instagram. Yeah. He has. He almost has. He almost has his, or he has more followers than than probably the ma- vast majority of us watching this. So. Yeah. <laughs> Monty is uh, sorry. A little dog management. Monty is very excited. That's how it uh, works. <laughs> But yeah, so for me, the goal was not going in to win and anything less than that was a failure. I was going in to have my best race possible. And I had already, I felt like I was already outperforming my expectations, um, which is actually kind of a position of strength to be racing from. Hmm. I will say that, you know, in the last lap, people asked me pretty often still, like, what were you thinking? What was going through your head when you passed? And like, when there was the mistake? And to be honest, like my answer every time is the same it is the most boring train of thought. I was thinking, okay, I know I can hold this power to the top. Okay. Then there's that corner that I can ride really smooth. And then I know where that rock is. And then I just have to get to this section and I can do another 30 second effort. Uh, and I want to go left around this route and Ooh, if I try really hard, I can ride this section. Um, it, it was focused on the process and those like little intermediate goals that had always been part of the plan, whether or not I was in the lead. What did it feel like to win a world championship? And then how did your life change afterwards? Did, was there a big change? It was awesome, obviously. Uh, <laughs> it was a really cool and very special day. Um, I think it was made a little bit more special by the fact that it was a surprise. Uh, although it's certainly like my one of my long-term career goals is to you know, go into it not as the underdog and to be able to pull it off because... I think that's a completely different thing. Um, And in some ways, much harder to do. In some ways, a little bit easier. But for me, it was, 
just an amazing experience where all of this work that I've done, and in particular, you know, we've talked on this podcast a lot about my team. Um, the fact that I'd worked really closely with all of those people and that I have a team around me who um, really invests in what I'm doing. And, you know, I always say like a good litmus test for that is when you call someone uh, or you text someone, hey, I need this at a weird time. Like Kyle will call me back in the middle of the night and be like, hey, I'm here. I got you. Like I'm as invested in this as you are. Um, Jim is the same way. My strike coach is the same way. They're all you know, looking to do whatever they can to positively impact this outcome. Uh, and when you win together, that's like the most incredible feeling. Um, and it was really special to, to do for myself, to do with them, um, and to do with my family and to share with, you know, the community where mountain biking initially started uh, and to bring it home to Tam and to ride with my dad and just kind of be in awe of this little sparkly rainbow kit I got to wear for a year. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I, I, the other aspect of this too, that I want to talk about is this year you mentioned, as we all know, it's really different, like shifting your goals, like mid season was, has that been difficult for you to go from having these constant benchmarks of these races that happen throughout the year and then switching to just having nothing? Well, we do, do you still have two races? That's <laughs> so, true. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a very difficult year, I think, for everyone. Um, and I think that goes far beyond just bike races. I think, uh, you know, I one of my neighbors was saying that we're all in the same boat, but the storm around us is different. So my storm has been cancellation of the Olympics, like all these goals that I've worked towards for a really long time and um, in many ways felt very poised to execute on. Uh, I would say, you know, there's some people who maybe they're a year too young or they like, you know, it, it benefits them. And that's totally cool. Uh, for me, I wasn't saying, oh man, I really need another year to like get my world ranking up and to, you know, have a chance to go. Like I was going into it pre-qualified, feeling really prepared, having focused on it for four years, but, but really focused on it for the last year and ranked first in the world. Um, so that was a, a big change, a big little, little storm for me. Uh, but at the same time, we're all in the same boat and everyone's dealing with these changes. All of the athletes who are racing world cups are dealing with the cancellations and the uncer uncertainty. And in a bigger sense, everyone's dealing with the uncertainty that this time has presented. Um, and I think for me, it definitely took a few weeks to adjust to that and, we've had to continually have these kind of strategic plans and adjust them. And that's where having a good team and having uh, Jim Miller at the helm really makes a big difference. Um, but I think, you know, after that initial period, I've really been able to find the advantage in it. And I think it's still hard to trust that advantage. Um, I think that someday, hopefully I will get on a race course and surprise myself a little bit but we've been able to make a lot of progress in training. And I think it's helped me appreciate as an athlete, the things that I need to perform at my best uh, and to train at my best. And that's really valuable information going into the rest of my career. Um, just understanding that like, for me, home is a superpower. Being at home, being able to train in an environment that I structure, uh, being able to work on that environment during this time in some home improvement and gym projects, uh, and being able to see the results of that in training, I think is going to be, um, a huge benefit down the road. 
Uh, this is actually well, something that we've we've talked about a little bit is just that this time is actually such a cool opportunity to do the to, to learn all of those types of things that where a normal season might not afford you those kinds of opportunities or the time to experiment with these things or the circumstances to discover the fact that home is a superpower and ways that you can kind of build on your environment to to benefit your performance to benefit your training so um yeah just another great thing to to underline here mm-hmm yeah. Uh, Kate, one thing I want to touch on too, is the difference between winning a world championship and a world cup overall, like in the cycling world, it's kind of rare on the roadside to have, like, even though the UCI points are there, we have like the, the tour, but then, and maybe like if a rider's going for a certain amount of monument wins, but that's kind of the only like stretched out season that a person really works on. Whereas in mountain biking, like the world cup overall stretches from March all the way into like September, even some years. So a really long stretch that you have to do. How is that different? And I don't know if this is even a fair question to ask because they are so different, but which one is more difficult and more sought after for you? I think it's a very fair question. Uh, The world championships dirty is more sought after you wear it for a year. It's, it's the coolest thing ever. Like, (laughs) I can't underline enough how fun it was to ride my bike in that Jersey all year and to like get to make people's day. Like people would come up and ask for photos. And initially I was kind of like, Oh my God. Uh, but it was so cool. Like to see how excited people were about my sport. Um, especially in the States where, you know, you ride in a world champs Jersey in Italy and like every single person will stop you. But to see people in the States, like learn about what this meant and, and really like share in the pride in having it here, uh, Mm. was really a special thing. Um, so I would say that's kind of, in my opinion, if you had to pick one to do, I would do that one. Mm. The world cup overall is so much harder. Like it is, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, and I think that's in part just because no matter what position you're in in your career, no matter how your season goes, like it is such a hard mental task to maintain the right mindset throughout, uh, I guess it's May to September and just a huge variety of racing, a ton of different training blocks. And also the year before an Olympic year, we were managing that with my Olympic prep and test camps for things that hopefully would have helped me in Tokyo and still will next year. Um, so for me, that was really challenging. And I think, you know, learning to deal with the spotlight, that was kind of the biggest example you could ever have of that new team world cup, overall leader, world champ, Jersey, Pan Am champ and national champ all at the same time. It was like, couldn't have been more (laughs) at those initial races. Um, and I think you just, you learn what, what a challenge that can be to adapt to. I think, you know, before the first race, everyone's saying, you know, Worlds was a fluke. She can't do it. Then I win one World Cup and everyone says, oh, now she has to win the next one. Then I win the next World Cup and they say, she'll never lose again. And you just, and then I have a terrible race and they say, she's burned out. She's done. She like won't even finish this. (laughs) Um, And I just, all of those statements are totally ridiculous, but I think, it's worth sharing because I think it's the behind the scenes that I was dealing with, not only dealing with my own performance and trying to stay at the peak and trying to stay healthy and motivated and um, as fit as possible for every single one of those races, but also dealing with those kind of swings and that pressure. And um, I think that's something that people don't appreciate when you're 
when you're fighting for the overall, it can be um, a, a really big kind of mental, emotional task. Mm. You mentioned something in our pre-recording meeting that actually like resonated with me a lot. And I don't know if it's maybe just like a common thing that I never heard, but so I may be wasting everybody's time with this, but you mentioned that the race is a story that you're telling yourself or something similar to that. And do you, did you have to find that like the season was also a story that you were telling yourself? Are you like using that kind of like on two different spectrums because it's so long? Were you listening in on my sports psychology conversation? <laughs> no, no, but it's, yeah. it's fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it really is. And I think the biggest challenge for me, um, I got really tired partway through the season. I had a really bad race at Valdezol, uh, and we didn't really know why, which was a little bit concerning. Um, I was like primed to do really well. I'd been doing really well in training the week before uh, and just had a really bad day. And it was so easy for me to be like, I'm burned out. I'm never going to be good again. I've, I've gone and lost this huge lead in the World Cup overall. And just to really buy into the stories that people were telling about me. And instead, uh, you know, having ownership over that story and being able to be honest, but not overly negative. I think that's the hard thing. When people say something that bothers you, it's because there's some kernel of truth to it. Uh, so when people were saying she's burned out, she's done, she's going to lose overall. I was saying, well, I am pretty tired (laughs) starting to listen to that. And I think instead being able to be honest and say, man, I'm really tired. You know what I need to do? I need to go home after this world cup and take a week off and then be a little conservative in training for a week. And then I'm going to sharpen up and I'll be great for the last few races of the season. Um, that's what I ended up doing. and, And that story worked out. Um, and then I think also just giving yourself the opportunity to have multiple ways to win, uh, and to see every race as an opportunity to do something positive rather than, you know, you're just fighting, losing something. Um, and oddly enough, having lost the world cup lead by the last race in snowshoe, um, I think it became hugely stressful. Like the one night that I've not slept before a race was the night before the XC at snowshoe because (laughs) it was, I had crushed it in the short track. I was within like 10 points and it was whoever won the next day, basically between Yolanda and I, and that's like, and it was like a points game. So it's like a Disney movie. It's like a Disney movie <laughs> ending. It's like, you know what I mean? Like right down to the end. I actually saw, I have the pizza box. My dad, like my dad, my parents are both there and my dad's super into like numbers and analysis. And he was analyzing like what place I had to finish in. And halfway through the race, he gets a pizza box and a Sharpie and starts <laughs> writing. You're in six. She's in 12. If you finish here, you and, like, <laughs> I have the one from the last one and it just says sixth wins and that I still have that. Um, That's so yeah, exciting. I think giving yourself opportunities to win and, I, I hope that, you know, even if I'd been in the leader's jersey there, that I could have found a way mentally to see it as an opportunity to do something great and not a risk of losing something really important to me. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's a lesson that I kind of had to learn by losing it and getting it back and um, being able to tell myself the right story to finish out on a high note. 
One I last, oh, sorry. Oh, I, I think there's a really important takeaway here that I just want to share really quickly because I think this can apply to people even when you're talking about upgrade points and upgrading categories. You said you have to learn different ways to win. And this is one of those things where people will look at this and say like, well, what my goal is to be, let's say category one, and they just want to get there as fast as they can. But if you stop and you allow yourself to A, learn how to win, and then B, learn how to win in different ways. Like you, you mentioned the fact that winning as the underdog is a completely different approach mentally, physically training than coming in as a defending champion. Just learning those two ways of winning is super important, let alone winning on a course that doesn't suit you, winning in you know surprising fashion, winning on something where it ain't pretty. <laughs> it might be just really ugly, but you get it done. And all of those different things. I mean, that's, that's a, that's another layer of skill set on everything that you're doing. Um, and I just, I just want to just mention that for people listening, because I think, you know, Kate's talking about world championships and world cups, but this is something that can really apply to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Lucy. Lucy teaches you. <laughs> that too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. If you're not learning from it, then it's pretty, yeah. Then it's a wasted opportunity for sure. Uh, the other, the last, like a uh, last situation question I want to ask before we get into the user question or the listener questions that you've submitted, which if you're on YouTube and you want to ask some questions, producer Tucker has been recording them down, but toss them in now. Go ahead. Uh, Last year at Labrest in the short track, which is like a different animal than cross country. It's, it's, it's more tactical. It's, it's a shorter race. It's really high intensity, but it's, it's like, it, it's really fun to watch. If anybody hasn't watched it, they totally should. But at Labrest, I think, was it Leger last year? It was Leger last year. Forgive me. Yeah. Leger. <laughs> yeah. At Leger, you, you did what I thought from the outset, it was a super gutsy move. Um, in fact, I think coach Chad and I were watching the race at the same time and we were like, holy cow, because you attacked, I think with like two or three laps to go. And I, I just want to know what made you attack in that situation. Clearly we're probably the, every, all every one of us listening to this won't be in that same exact situation, but maybe we can learn from it. Why did you attack there? Because it was such a bold move leading up to that. Everybody seemed like they were really aggressive, really capable. And there was, it was a really active race. And then you just went and I mean, spoiler alert, you stuck it. So why'd you go then? Yeah, that was an interesting race. I think, uh, I kind of got my ass kicked the weekend before in, uh, Andorra at altitude and, that was actually really good for me. Again, we were talking about kind of the narrative and the idea that, you know, after that first kind of magical world cup trip, everyone saying, Oh, she's never going to lose. And then I come to Andorra and they're like, man, she really something changed. And now she's terrible. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But really I just struggled with the altitude and I had to trust that I was still really on good form. Um, And I'd had a really great training block before. So I think for me, it was partially just, you know, taking a little pressure off myself. Um, I remember, uh, my mantra for it and I will bleep out my own swear word here, but it was, uh, uh, what was it? Let go of perfection or give yourself permission to not be perfect and to be effing awesome. That was like my (laughs) thing, which was just like, take risks, go for it, be awesome. But if you don't win, it's fine. Like you already lost the race before. Like everyone we're all cool it's okay <laughs> you can lose and survive but what if you can win um and we had a plan in that race i was really focused i felt great and i was looking for that opportunity um coming into the start finish where basically what happened is 
YOLO was fourth wheel, I think, or fifth wheel. And they hesitated a little bit. And I said, she, and she like, I just could tell she wasn't in a position of strength right then. And I don't know how to really communicate, like how you know that in a race, but you can watch people's body language. You can just like kind of pay attention to how people feel. And if you're like paying attention to them, you're probably not going as hard as you can. Uh, and if you see people struggling, like I just knew in that moment, that was the moment to go. Um, and I think because I wasn't afraid to lose, I was willing to do what it might take to win. Uh, and it worked out really well. And I would actually say that Leger, that race and the cross country race were two, my, probably my favorite race last year. Um, it was, you know, I, I raced with confidence. I raced to the best of my ability, but again, I wasn't like trying not to lose. I wasn't afraid to lose. I, I just raced really confidently and well and executed my plan. Um, and it was also the only race that I won in the rainbow Jersey in front of my family. And that was like my biggest fear after those first two races, I thought, Oh my God, why'd you guys not come to this? You know, <laughs> so many things have to happen to win a race in the rainbow Jersey. Like, I don't know if I'll ever get a, again, I don't know if I'll ever win a world cup again, wearing it. Like that would have been a huge disappointment for me if my parents hadn't been able to see that. And so I think that was like, I mean, my dad said it's the happiest he's ever seen me where I was able to do that in front of my family um, in a way that I was really proud of. It was such a cool win. It was just like, wow. <laughs> like she just laid all her cards out on the table and she made it stick. It was really cool. So, um, okay. Getting into some, some questions that people have submitted, probably the most important one that's on everybody's mind here. Who is the mastermind behind Kate is an animal. And what I'm saying, there's the Instagram account. It's Kate is an animal. And if anybody hasn't checked it out, uh, <laughs> it's pretty funny. And everyone there's, there's like this underground, I guess, like rumor people say, Oh, Kate must be running it because they always, whenever she post something, they post something else. So who's behind it? Do you know? I will not reveal. I do know who it is. <laughs> it is not me though. Like I, this is the one thing everyone always thinks it's me. And then there's like a picture of a dying walrus next to me. And I do <laughs> acknowledge the humor. It's objectively funny. So I love it. Um, but I don't think that I would select those photos of myself. <laughs> uh, so hopefully someone will guess it at some point, but it's pretty good. Yeah. It's an awesome account. It's a, it's a worthy follow for sure. A another question somebody asked, they say, is Brad as goofy and Brad is your mechanic, by the way. Um, another part of your team, they say, is Brad as goofy in real life as he is on social media? Absolutely. Probably <laughs> yeah. He's actually goofier. I think. Yeah. In my experiences too. So uh, he's an awesome guy though. And he's also a worthy follow tons of fun, but you also get really good insight and man, Brad, I don't want to like blow you out on this. Cause I, I, you know, I don't want to blow out your DMS, but I've seen him interacting with people in comments and like giving them like, they'll be, they'll like ask like, what tire pressure is Kate running today? And he like, he like sh shares so many things or like, they're like, Hey, I have trouble with this. So he's just a really awesome guy. So, uh, check him out for sure. Uh, another question, what made you decide to, or what has made you decide to try cyclocross after Tokyo? Okay. This <laughs> This is totally cycling tips did not check their facts on this one. 100 false. Uh, they like ran an article that's like Kate Courtney changes focus to cyclocross. I've never raced cyclocross. I told uh, Neil Rogers was here doing a big piece in the spring, and he was like, "Would you ever consider racing in a different discipline?" And I said, "I think cyclocross worlds is going to be in the U.S." Um, and I said, you know, maybe I try to like get into that because you get way more start spots if it's in the U S. Um, 
And it would be a cool way to kind of like motivate myself to try cross, learn some skills, do something different. But it is by no means a target. I might not even do it. I probably won't now that the Olympics have been moved. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> thank you for giving me the chance to clarify that because I was uh, feeling a little bad that all these cross girls think I'm like, yeah, I'm coming. Come to <laughs> like, it's totally unfair. Like, I've been doing, I don't even know how to get off my bike. You guys. It's okay. <laughs> I, I, I like suck at it. Like I used to be able to go on without the like little half hop, but now anytime I try to get on the bike, it's like half hop is there and I don't know how to break it again. I don't know. It's, it's tough. So yeah, cyclocross is rough. Um, are there ideal bike settings that you use like across all the races? Cause the courses do vary quite a lot for world cup or do you vary your bike setup per race? Um, it usually varies per race, but we have settings that we start with. Um, and then again, that's where Brad comes in handy. I think, uh, you know, we've been one, one other bike setup thing I wanted to say, and for women in particular, uh, weight impacts suspension a lot. Um, and that's something I think, you know, Brad really listens to any feedback I give, but I do think in the past, and I think I've seen this with a lot of other women where if a guy sets up your suspension, they often can't imagine what it would be like to be so tiny. And so, um, I think that's a place where your feedback can be hugely helpful and don't think you don't know what you're talking about or you're wrong because what you think feels good is different. Um, it might be due to your size or weight, or as we said, with the reaching of the brakes, your hands being really small. Um, so that's an example of somewhere that I'll come back and say, Oh, it was making this sound. And it did this when I went over this drop and it made me feel uncomfortable and we'll change settings and I'll ride faster. Uh, we'll just do three more to, to not take up too much more of your time. <clears throat> Forgive me. But, um, another thing, uh, that somebody's asking here is, or who are the people in your team? And like, when you say your team, how many people are in that team that you have? Cause there's Scott Strand, but then also all the people that you have around you. In terms of like my personal coaching team, um, it, there's a lot of people. Uh, there's my coach, my strength coach, sports psychologist, nutritionist, my physical therapist. Is that everyone? That's pretty, that's, those are the core people. Um, but even as far as like, you know, people that support me my boyfriend, my family, uh, those are the people every day that are doing things like driving cars during point to point rides or making sure I have the right nutrition that I need or making sure that my travel goes smoothly, picking me up at the airport and, uh, you really can't do those things alone. Um, and having a good support team, whether or not they're kind of professionals, uh, makes a huge difference. Mm. Uh, another, uh, Nate, did you have a question? I don't know if you had, a, no, okay. I was counting. That was five people. Okay. <laughs> got it. Got it. <laughs> Very high tech here. Monty. Wait, did we talk about Monty? <laughs> yeah, he fits in there for sure. Uh, the last two questions. So first of all, what have you learned from being on a team with Thomas Frischneck, which I mean, legend in the sport of mountain biking, Nino Scherter, a current legend in the sport of mountain biking, Lars Forster, like you have a really, really impressive team there. And I'm sure you've learned a ton. So I'm not just going to ask like, what have you learned? Because I'm sure it's a lot, but uh, specifically, like what have been the most impactful things that you've taken from that team? My, I love my team. I'm really, really honored to be able to race on it. Uh, they let an American into the Swiss club and I'm really <laughs> psyched about it. And in recent news, Nino and I have signed through 2022 and they signed Andre and Lars as well. Um, That's awesome. 2022. So that was kind of, you know, during this pandemic, they were 
figuring out our, our sponsor deals for the next few years. And the team will say the same, which is huge and also rare that, uh, you know, four riders of that caliber would all be eager to sign long-term contracts. And I think that speaks to the level of the team, but also to the leadership of Frishy uh, in particular. He makes it a really fantastic environment and he makes it fun. Um, I would say the biggest thing I've learned, and this is part of why I really wanted to race for the team, is a little bit of perspective. And I think that's something that um, Frishy and Nino in particular have just because of their wealth of experience. Uh, you know, I, I think I, I probably could have gone to another team the year I won Worlds and like had a lot of control uh, and been, you know, catered to a little bit. That's kind of how it works with the rainbow jersey. Um, and instead I went to a team where, you know, it was like, get back to work. Uh, Nino won eight. Like, what have you done? <laughs> uh, and where Frishy was like, you know, the first round I go on with Frishy is like, man, I can't believe you won Worlds. Like, you really need to work on your technical skills in the most <laughs> loving way possible. Um, but for me, that was like exciting. Like, I love being the underdog. I love feeling like I have a lot to work on and that people believe in me. Like, if Frishy didn't believe that I could be great, he wouldn't have signed me in the first place. And he also wouldn't invest the time to make sure I improved. Um, he wouldn't be focused on how I'm cornering and how I do these little tiny things over this rock uh, if he didn't think that I could be great. Um, so being the underdog on that team and seeing that perspective has shown me that, you know, no win is so big and no loss is so big. They kind of, they show up prepared, they're calm, they're relaxed, they enjoy it. They, you know, have big team dinners and and aren't like as maybe intense or, um, paranoid the night before races like they're relaxed and focused and prepared and then we race and if you win we celebrate and if you lose we commiserate and then we move on and figure out how to win the next one uh and i think that's something that's really important at this level uh not getting tied up with that one world cup you won once and also not getting tied up with that one world cup you lost once yeah super good one last question we know that you here in the States, you came up through NICA, which is the national interscholastic cycling association. So that's like the, the mountain bike leagues that we talk about with our middle school and high school aged, uh, teenage youth in this country, it's exploding, getting huge all the time. And it's amazing. Uh, you came up through that system in the NorCal league. And we even have plenty of folks in the chat right now that are asking for like, you know, advice and that sort of stuff. And I'm sure you've given this before, but advice to young, specifically young teenage females that are mountain bikers. Uh, what advice would you give them in order to, whether it's, you know, I guess just with their relationship with mountain biking, how do they get more from that? Yes. Uh, it's a really good question. First of all, it's awesome to see there are so many more women on mountain bikes, especially through NICA. Um, I would say for me, the biggest advice that I would honestly give to myself if I were still in that position at that time, um, is to really focus on taking things step by step. I think when I first started mountain bike racing, I'd never really been exposed to the competitive side of the sport. And I think that that ignorance actually helped me a lot. Uh, cause I wasn't focused on, Oh, I want to be this person. I was just focused on, Oh, I want to win a varsity race. And that was like all that I thought was possible. And then all of a sudden I learned that I could race nationals. And then I learned that I could race in Europe locally. And then there were junior world cups and then there's U23 world cups and then elite world cups. And so it's really a 10 year process. 
uh, or at least a six-year process to work your way up through those fields. Um, and I think that it's easy to kind of see it as one big leap instead of all the little steps. Um, and honestly, the other side of it is that mountain biking's a lifelong sport and one that's really enjoyable. Um, so making sure that you're not just focused on those little steps, but that you're enjoying them and you're, you know, really engaged in the process and you're having fun. Like Nike is so fun. You have lots of people to ride with. The races are insane. There's so many people, there's families, like enjoy that moment and don't be comparing that to, well, but okay, if today I do this and tomorrow I do this, then in five years, I'm going to win worlds. And then in five years in one day, I'm going to do this. It's, it's more of a step-by-step process and it's going to be different for everyone. So, um, enjoy it keep making progress, finding ways to improve. And if you stay consistent in your training and in your focus, you will make it to wherever you want to go. Awesome. Kate, this has been so fantastic. You're you're an incredible podcast guest. And I hope a lot of people got a lot from this. Uh, If you're in Tahoe next time, got to let us know. uh, So then we can go out for an awesome ride. I have an e-bike, so... (laughs) it'll be the fastest race i have this year so far (laughs) they're a good that's a good race tool by the way follow a follow a good rider on an e-bike that's a good that's a great race simulation right there um uh but thanks so much for doing this this is just awesome uh where can people find or follow you find out more about you everything else um k plus fade on instagram there's a website everything's kind of linked into there so that's probably the best the best way Cool. Awesome. And if you want to know more about Trainer Road, please, everybody head over to trainerroad.com and check it out. We've got awesome, great things coming out all the time. And if you're listening to this or watching it on YouTube, give us a thumbs up right now. That means more mountain bikers will find this and somebody will find some really great nuggets of information here that are going to make them enjoy the sport more and be faster, which is what we're all about. And then finally, of course, uh, subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends. Thanks a bunch, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Okay, bye. Um, thank you.